In your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 17. A couple of announcements here as we get going. First of all, we want to honor a group of people that were the uh, Kids Kingdom teachers that just finished their rotation and now uh, you are in here and we have a new set of teachers. So if you were serving in Kids Kingdom, go ahead and stand up and we want to recognize you. Thank you so much for teaching our children and doing a great job, having a great spirit and attitude uh, in that endeavor. Uh, Secondly, is that uh, we do have a uh, uh, family group leaders meeting afterwards, and we're going to have a briefer meeting with no lunch. I know on the uh, calendar uh, it had said lunch, but we're going to forego lunch today. Got to go a little bit uh, of a shorter meeting uh, and, uh, and no lunch. You can get lunch on your own. Uh, I know we have the uh, June calendars that are up here, and uh, anything else, Chris? I see two piles. Chris is otherwise. <laughs> uh, are they just calendars or calendars of something else? I see. Notes for, from Wednesday night for the women, I guess. Okay, so uh, women, if you'd like those notes, you can go ahead and uh, make yourself available to them. Luke 17, you there? Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Yeah. <laughs> he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Wow. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to that servant when he comes from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me? While I eat and drink, and after that, you can eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say we're only unworthy servants, and we've only done our duty. The title of the lesson today is is, uh, Watch Yourself. And we're going to talk about the concept of watching yourself, but I want to set the... The scene here a little bit and the, uh, the circumstances of Jesus and what's going on in Luke 17. This is Jesus' last little circle around Galilee before he's going to go south into Jerusalem. And of course we know that he's going to die in Jerusalem. 
He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem. He's told the guys that he's going to die in Jerusalem. They don't really understand that and probably don't even really believe it. And so this is his last sort of a tour around. Now he's sort of scared off by this time the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They've tried to catch him a number of times and things that he's teaching, and they've tried to trap him. And each time that that, that's happened, Jesus has sort of turned the tables on them. And so by this time, they're leaving him alone. They're probably knowing what they're going to be doing down in Jerusalem later on or hoping that they can do something like that. But the context of what we have then is that Jesus is actually with the twelve. The crowds that were following them are no longer there. We just have the twelve and Jesus, and they're slowly moving around, and he's teaching them. I believe in the context of what we're looking at in these first ten verses of chapter 17 here, he's teaching them some fundamentals and basics of what it means to be a child of God. And he's saying to them, you've got to master these sort of simple little things, and these things are things that are heart-level things that he's teaching them. And so he's saying to them, watch yourself. Do a self-diagnostic. You know what a diagnostic is? That's a test. It's an observation. So he says, watch yourself. Now the Bible actually talks about this concept a number of times. Look over to First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. This idea that you need to watch yourself. Now we're going to balance this in just a moment. But first of all, I want us to really absorb this idea. You need to take care of you. One of the things that my dad told me a number of different times in life that uh, stuck with me, and I think it was a big thing that he was trying to teach me, raising me to be a man, is that circumstances would come up and I'd say, Dad, uh, can you help me with this? Or, Dad, can you, can you take care of this? And he'd say, Son, that's your business. And some of you that know me well, uh, you know that I've told you that. Yeah. <laughs> in different uh, counseling kind of situations that we've been in. In other words, he was trying to say to me, Marty, it's time for you to grow up. You got yourself in this problem, and you take care of it. Now, we live in a world today where people are desperate to blame all their problems on somebody else. This has got to be somebody else's problem. It, it certainly can't be me. But the Bible teaches us quite the opposite. The Bible teaches us, hey, you need to watch yourself. In First Timothy chapter 4, and verse uh, 7, Paul's talking, uh, in verse 8 rather, uh, Paul is, uh, verse 7, uh, uh, we can start there and go down to verse 8. He's teaching Timothy how to be a minister and, and how to deal with his life. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Who's Timothy supposed to train? You take care of you. You take care of your business. That's your business, is what Paul is telling Timothy. To train yourself spiritually. Uh, look over to Acts chapter 20. We see a little bit of a balancing act here with this idea of train yourself and take care of yourself. And that we also oftentimes have responsibility not just for ourselves but others as well. In Acts chapter 20 verse 28, Paul's talking to the elders of the church. And he says this, Acts 20 verse 28. Keep watch over yourself. So he starts there, doesn't he? Yeah. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
So oftentimes in life, we don't just have a responsibility for us, but we do need to care and be involved with others as well. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, when uh, you have the first murder in the Bible, you know, and, and, and what, what's the big comeback when God says, where's your brother? He says, well, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I responsible for the little brat all the time? And, of course, the answer is, in in many respects, uh, yeah, you are responsible for your your brother. So in life, sometimes we do have a responsibility for others. But this lesson is centering in and more on we need to be responsible for ourselves. And isn't that what Jesus says to him? He says, so watch yourself. You you take care of yourself here uh, in this situation. Now, he's going to talk about heart-level things. And here are the four things that he's going to talk about in these ten verses. He's first of all going to talk about sin. Secondly, he's going to talk about forgiveness. And you can sort of put forgiveness slash love. Because if if we love, we forgive. If we don't love, then we don't forgive. So he's going to talk about, uh, number one, forgiveness. Or number one, sin. Number two, forgiveness. Number three, he's going to talk about faith. Because they bring it up. And he talks about it. Faith. They think they need more faith. Jesus says, basically, you've already got enough faith. And you need to work on your own faith instead of blaming me for you not having faith. And last, he says, we're going to have to talk about here good works. And your attitude toward good works and doing good things in life. Let's talk first of all about sin. Jesus says here, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to the person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now the Bible teaches clearly, Romans 3.23, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's a fundamental truth. We all know it. Sometimes we want to minimize it in our life. But the truth of the matter is, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we sin. We know that we make mistakes in our life. We all have and we all will continue to. That's one of the reasons we become Christians. Look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Paul here is talking to the church in Corinth, and he actually talks about, he says, well, you know, this is who we were before we became Christians. And he lists off their behavior, which is sinful behavior. And his whole idea is here, that's what we were, but now we're trying to do better in our life. We're trying to live a different life. We still sin, but we're trying to at least live a new life. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying, you know, if you're living in obvious sin, where you're not even trying, you're, you're obviously not going to be part of the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Quite a fellowship they've got there in the church in Corinth. I mean, you looked around their church service and who did you have? I would suggest... A group just about like this one. Just about like us. That was the church in Corinth. We just call it the church in Glendale. Here we are. Here we are. 
Now, he lists off, he lists off all kinds of sins. Sexual sins. He lists off sins against other people. And things that, that people do to people. A number of different things there. And he says, and that is what you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We all sin. When we become Christians, we're forgiven of our sin. We have to make sure that we don't go back to who we were before we became a Christian. There should be a clear demarcation in a real Christian's life between how you used to live and how you now live. Now, we still sin. But prayerfully, over time, we can clearly delineate. That's what I used to be. This is what I am now. Now, the truth is, in our life, as we are Christians for a longer, longer period of time, we become more aware, oftentimes, of sin that we have in our life that probably, as a non-Christian or before we were saved, we weren't even really aware of that. In other words, we, we clue in more. We understand more. You know, when Jesus says, you must deny yourself. And you're a Christian for a number of years and you realize, you know, I'm more selfish than I thought I was. You understand, you know, I'm more deceitful than I thought I was. I thought lying was just good explaining. You know, I understand now. Man, that wasn't just a good excuse. I was just lying. And so sometimes as a Christian, you become more aware of sin in your life is what happens. But we've got to make sure we're dealing with sin in our life. This is fundamental in our life. Now, he talks about the idea of sinning against other people. Since you're there in 1 Corinthians, look over at chapter 8. He talks about the idea, he says, if if you cause somebody to sin... If you mess somebody up, he said, it'd be better for you than if you had a millstone. This is a huge grinding stone tied around your neck. In other words, you know, you jump out in the water, you're going to the bottom. He said, it'd be better for you. In other words, he's saying, you better not cause other people to sin. And in Corinth here, interestingly enough, in chapter 8, Paul talks about that concept in verse 9. He says, be careful, however... That the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, let's continue. He says, for if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating at an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. The context is Paul's talking about eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. He's saying, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But many of the Christians believe that if you ate meat that it had been sacrificed to an idol, that it had been uh, polluted by this idol worship, and that it would pollute their spiritual life. And Paul is saying, okay, now you've got the knowledge. You, you understand really, hey, meat is meat and it's no big deal. 
But you've got brother or sister over here that thinks, in their own conscience, that if I eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, it's going to destroy me spiritually. And he's saying, you who have this knowledge, if you just say, well, I don't care what's going on with her, I don't care what's going on with him, I want to have a steak. Okay. And the weaker conscience person sees you doing that, and they say, well, I don't feel good about this, but I, I trust this brother or sister. I guess I'll go ahead and do it. But they're violating their conscience. And Paul is saying, if you violate your conscience in that way, you do sin. He stand out and they say, you need to understand, if you cause somebody to sin by the way you live your life, it's a serious matter. Sin's a serious matter in all of our lives. Now, we all sin, but it's a serious matter. We don't need to say, well, I'll sin. No, no big deal. No, we all sin. Big deal. It's a big deal in our life. And we've got to make sure that we're more our new person and not our old person in our life. And we've got to really make sure that the behavior that we have in our life does not cause other people to sin, to embolden them to do what's wrong, if you understand what I'm saying. Very serious stuff here in this concept of sin. Now go back to Luke 17, because he just doesn't start, uh, start and stop with sin, but he starts with sin, and then he goes on, and he talks about forgiveness. Because, you know, really, you know, when we talk about sin, sometimes it's going to come up that we sin against each other. Right? And he says, we're going to have to forgive. And he draws out an exaggeration. He said, you know, if your brother sins and he comes and says, I'm sorry or repents, forgive him. Everybody in the world says, okay, I'm with you. I get it. But Jesus takes it to an extended version here. He says, if this happens seven times in a day. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty extreme, isn't it? That this would happen. If he, if he sins against you seven times in a day... And seven times comes back and says, I'm sorry. Now, I'm telling you, after about three, yeah. I, I'm going to be like, hey, get out of here. What's up with you? You know, you need to, you're saying you repent, but you're doing a poor job of repenting here. And see, what I'm illustrating there. And the reason many of us smiled or, or uh, chuckled there is because when people sin against us and they come back and they sin against us and they come back, we begin to get annoyed, irritated, perhaps even bitter and angry. To forgive, you have to love. This is really hard sometimes for some of us. Some of us, honestly, are good forgivers. And I commend you for that. I don't know if it's a gift from God uh, or that you've really developed your spiritual life. But at, at, at whatever uh, uh, level there, uh, we're good forgivers. We, we just, you know, by, by nature we don't hold a grudge. We, we're, not, we're not grudgers. As my wife uh, sort of made a term there as it related to me. Uh, we, we hadn't been married... We haven't been married but months or, or perhaps a year. I don't know. And, and she said, she said I, I figured you, you're a grudger. 
uh, which I, I had never heard that word before. But uh, she said, you're a, you're a grudger, uh, which uh, she was indicating I was one that would hold a grudge or, or be annoyed uh, beyond the time when she said, well, I'm sorry, and I'd still be annoyed. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder if we have more than one grudger in the room here. Possibly. Possibly. But when we begin to be a grudge holder, when we begin to be annoyed or angry, our ability to forgive goes out the door. So forgiveness and love go hand in hand here in dealing with people. We sin against each other. We lie. We don't tell the truth sometimes to people. We steal. We gossip. We talk about people behind their back in a less than complimentary way. We say things hatefully, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. Insensitive things. And, And we let each other down. Oftentimes in life. You know, uh, uh, it's just a feeling of, and this particularly goes for those of us uh, who have the responsibility of leadership in any capacity, is that uh, we, we expect a leader in our life uh, to live to a higher standard. Uh, I know I do uh, with people that I would consider to be uh, people that I would respect in leadership positions in the church or in other positions. I expect them. Uh, to uh, live to a high level. Uh, you expect me uh, to live to a high level. I think it's a normal uh, feeling of expectation that we have toward people that are in positions of leadership. Uh, we expect a teacher, for instance. We expect that teacher to live to a high standard. And when we hear of teachers that don't, or they uh, live to a standard that's less than what we think, we're disappointed with them. Uh, if a politician or a person in, 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 uh, in a government uh, responsibility uh, does things that perhaps other people around us might do, uh, we're very disappointed in, in, in that kind of thing. That we, and, and, and that way we sin against each other. So, I mean, let, think of all that. Uh, steal, lie, gossip, uh, say things, let people down. There's a lot of different ways that people can sin against people. And we are all sinned against, and we all sin against. You know, sometimes people get a little self-righteous. I can't believe you did that! Really? Wow. Everything you accuse people of, you're just as guilty as they are. Oftentimes, of, of similar things. So we've got to be a little careful about self-righteousness. Husbands and wives Uh-oh. sin against each other. They do. I know single people, you have a hard time understanding that. Married, married people have no trouble understanding that concept. There is not a soul alive that can make you uh, any more angry than your spouse. You love them. You love them. But you also can be unbelievably disappointed or annoyed with them. Parents sin against children. Not a parent alive, at least had a child very long, that doesn't go to bed one night thinking, you know, I'm going to grade me out at a C minus today in parenting. Uh, not sure I did a great job today parenting. 
children are unaware of it until they grow up, but children sin against their parents too. They lie. Uh-oh. Oh, they lie like a rug. Did you do that? No. No, never did. Yeah, he never did anything. Was that your idea? No, that was Johnny's idea. That dirty Johnny, he's just a terrible kid. You know? Of course, with Johnny, he's talking about you at his house, you know? In the church, brothers sin against brothers. Sisters sin against sisters. Brothers sin against sisters. Sisters sin against brothers. That's all the components we have here. That's all, that's all that, you know, we don't have any, don't have any Klingons or Romulans here, but, but if we did, they're sinners too, I'm sure. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 14 that if you don't forgive people when they sin against you, you will not be forgiven by your Heavenly Father. Forgiveness is not an option. You can't say, well, yeah, conceptually I understand. No, this is not a concept. Yeah. This is reality. You are going to be sinned against, and when you are, you must forgive. You say, well, I'll forgive if they'll, you know, suck up to me properly. <laughs> you know, that, that, see, Jesus says, we're on number four or five there. You understand what I'm saying? Forgiveness is not an option. You must forgive. In First Peter, First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, says, love covers over a multitude of sins. When we sin, love provides forgiveness. Now, let's, let's do a little bit of a study here because this is important. There is a proper procedure. Look over to Matthew 18. There's a procedure here that we need to understand that Jesus teaches. By the way, uh, Matthew 18 is a parallel passage to uh, uh, Luke 17 that we're studying. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Right? Okay. Okay. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan tax collector. Jesus says here there's a proper procedure how you deal with things when you feel like someone has sinned against you. First and foremost, you go to them and you talk to them. Now, what do we do? When someone sins against us, the first thing we want to do is talk to somebody else about it. That's true. First thing we want to do is get a bunch of people involved instead of you go to you. You go to him. You go to her. There's a proper procedure of how we are to handle this. When it's not handled this way, it causes all kinds of problems in the church. You say, well, I, I, I went and, and I didn't have any success. Well, then take somebody else. Well, then get other people involved, he's saying, to try to bring about a restitution of good relationship here. And if the person at the very end of it, well then you might have to go so far as to take it to the church if it's that serious and that kind of thing. I can tell you, my experience over many, many years is you're never, ever going to get that far deep into this procedure if you'll do the first thing first. Yeah. When you feel like someone sinned against you, you just need to go and talk to them. 
and a lot of times, uh, the vast majority of times, when you go and talk to them, they say, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it that way. I didn't mean to communicate that. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I didn't, you, know, what, I, you know, that wasn't in my heart. I'm sorry. Usually, it, it's, it's good and done right there. Everybody goes home and goes to Kentucky Fried Chicken, if you understand what I'm saying. Everything's happy. Everything's happy. But when we feel like someone wrongs us, and then we go talking to everybody else about it, it, it is never a good, it's never a good outcome. And so there's a procedure of how you deal with this sin and the forgiveness kind of things that he's talking about in these first two points. Now, let's go back to Luke 17. Because the apostles' reaction to this is, increase our faith. <laughs> increase our faith. We need more faith. Jesus, help us out. Well, they did need more faith. Because they obviously didn't have enough love. And because love and faith go together, they realize, I don't have it in my heart to love that way. I need more faith. And they put it on Jesus. Increase our faith. Jesus says, you don't need more faith in the sense that you need this truckload of faith. He says, if you've got just a little faith, you can do amazing things. And he illustrates it by saying you can take this tree and plant it in the ocean. Now, since the fact that Jesus never took a tree and planted it in the ocean would indicate that taking a tree and planting it in the ocean is not part of the will of God. You understand what I'm saying? He's not saying here we need to relocate the forest into the ocean. He's simply saying, guys, the impossible, almost the ridiculous, could be done with just a little faith. Don't put it on me to increase your faith. You need to be more loving. As you are loving, your faith will increase as well. Sometimes you say, well, I'm not doing well spiritually. I don't know what's wrong. I'll give you an answer that may solve your problem. Start being loving. Okay. Some of you in this audience today, right now, you're sitting there and you're saying, you know, I, I'm really not where I need to be spiritually. I don't feel like I'm growing spiritually. I don't feel like I, I'm where I could be spiritually. What's wrong with me? We're going to finish this sermon here in about ten minutes. And we're going to all stand up. And I challenge you, if that's in your heart right now, that you're not where you know you should be spiritually, you don't feel like you're doing well spiritually, you say, it's time to be loving. Then you, you, you just pick out targets. Okay? You. I'm going to be loving to you. And, and do a little loving up on them and say, okay. Wow. Victim number two here. Okay. I'm going to be loving to you. Okay, come on. And you finish up. And you, okay, who's three? Okay. I'm saying for most of us, by three, we're exhausted. <laughs> you're, you're ready to go home by three. Because you know what? You're tired. You're like, man, I've been giving it myself. I've been loving. And you know what's going to happen when you walk off the grounds of this church building? You're going to say, you know, I did something today, church. I feel like I'm doing better spiritually than when I came in. Why? Because you pushed yourself to increase you pushed yourself to have a positive influence on someone's life. Your love increased, and so your faith increased, and all of a sudden you're doing better spiritually. 
You see, the amazing thing will happen is, if we could get about a third of this room committed to doing that, I'm not saying a third of you are doing that spiritually, but if we get a third, of the, you know, a third of the room doing that, can you imagine how people would feel when they left church? They say, wow, this, this has been a fantastic church service. We increase in our faith. It's not Jesus' responsibility to, to zap you with faith. It's your responsibility to act on the faith that you have. And do the things that a person should do if they're acting and, and living by faith. Now, Jesus ends this with a story that, frankly, is a little hard for us to swallow. He's teaching fundamentals. Basics of, okay, guys, you've got to get this stuff down. We're going to go to Jerusalem shortly, and I'm going to be gone. And so you've got to get down how to deal with sin in your life. How to forgive people around you. How to grow in your faith and your love. And now he's going to talk about duty, about works. Well, if we grow in our faith, what do we grow in then? We grow in our works, because faith and works go together. Now, we have a debate sometimes, are we saved by our faith or are we saved by our works? Well, obviously we're saved by our faith, but if we have faith, what are we going to do? We're going to have works. So he's following in a sequential uh, way here, if you understand what I'm saying. Now, this story blows our mind. We don't have slavery in our world. Well, perhaps in other places, we don't have it here, okay? In our term of reference to how people live around us, we don't have slavery. In their understanding of the world, slavery was as normal as, as uh, every day. He says, suppose a, a guy had a slave, and he'd been out working all day, and the slave came home at dinner time. He said, would he say to his slave, oh, sit down here, I'll serve you dinner. And the obvious answer to Jesus' illustration here is, no, that would never happen. The servant had been out all day working. It was dinner time. And the master would say, I don't care whether you were working all day or not. It's dinner time. Dinner time means you serve me. You are my servant. Jesus said, would the guy thank the servant? And the answer is no. We say, now wait a minute, what a jerk. <laughs> you, mean, you mean that guy been working all day in the field? Now he expects him to serve him dinner? And he's not even going to say thank you? What's wrong with this guy? Yeah. Jesus is making a point about our attitude about doing things. Doing the will of God. What does he say there at the end? He said, When you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are only unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. You know, last week, last uh, Saturday, we served uh, the poor uh, a meal down on uh, Skid Row, on St. Julian Street. Jesus would say, do you need a pat on the back? Mm. Yeah, Jesus would say, you should have done that. You've only done your duty. We had our contribution earlier today. Some of you put a significant amount of money in that contribution. Do you deserve a pat on the back? 
No, Jesus would say, no, you did your duty. Now, we like a pat on the back. I do. And in a right context, we should be grateful and thankful and expressive to people who are kind or do works of service for us. But Jesus here is actually trying to teach a very important concept that in our world today sometimes is almost looked down upon. He's teaching a concept of duty. Commitment. Reliability. Dependability. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a child of God, you're going to have to have a concept in your life that I have given my life to the Lord. I said, when I was baptized into Christ, in my good confession, something to the extent or something along the terms of Jesus is Lord. Or I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And we understood that in the concept of becoming a child of God. I did. You did. We, there was no lack of clarity. When you became a child of God, I am making the ultimate commitment of my life. Not the next two years. Not the next ten. I'm making a commitment of my life. Probably the only commitment we make in our life that would be parallel to that should be our marriage vow. And I understand... In many places in the world today, in our world today, in Southern California, when the minister or the officiant does the the marriage ceremony, those words are not ever said. Let me promise you, if you get married and you're standing in front of me, it's always going to be said. That this commitment is a commitment that is intended to be until death do you part, are words to that extent. I understood that on a more profound level when I became a Christian. And I think you did too. I'm not doing this for my college years. This isn't, uh, you know, until I find myself in life. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. That meant Jesus is Lord of all. Not if, if he's not of all, he's not at all. Yep. You know, it's like the old joke of, you know, the guy, he, he, the only thing he didn't want to give up was money, you know. So he's getting baptized, he reaches his wall and holds it out of the water, you know, before he goes under. No, you know. That's not going. He's under the water, wall. No. When you got baptized, your wallet went with you. You know what I'm saying? You know? Your marriage band went with you under the water, you know. Everything. Your marriage, your job, your everything is in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. And so once you've done everything, you've only done your duty. It should be something among us that should be a sense of pride. I am committed. I am dependable. You don't have to look around hoping I show up at church. Mm. Okay. Oh God, I hope Marty shows up today. Okay. 
to quote Shakespeare, you and I should be as constant as the northern star. Independable, commitment. And at the end of the day, we're only unworthy servants. And we only do our duty. You know, the Bible says that we must all go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. None of us know the hardships that we'll go through when we become a Christian. You don't have any idea when you become a Christian. The hardship and difficulties that you may face in life. I oftentimes look at difficulties that other Christians have gone through and I say, God, thank you for sparing me from that. Please, please don't make me have to live through that. There's not a parent in the room that doesn't have chills run up and down their back thinking about having to bury their children. But they're children of God that go through that kind of suffering and difficulty in life. We have no idea when we're baptized what our life will play out to be. But there should be an underscore and foundation of our life that I am a child of God and I will be. No matter what suffering or difficulty or disappointments that I have to live through in life. We're only unworthy servants. We don't deserve to be saved. God doesn't look down on me and say, you know, yeah, it was worth it for my only son Jesus to die on the cross for Marty. No, he looks at me in a proper sense and says, you know, compared to Jesus, Marty is, is, this doesn't, doesn't quite add up. And that's the truth. I'm saved by grace. I'm an unworthy servant. Not a worthy servant. I'm not doing God a favor. God doesn't look down on me and say, Oh, good! I'm really glad we got Marty! As if I'm the ringer. You know, oh, boy, we got him. We're going to win the game. Now, I'm an unworthy servant. You are an unworthy And we never graduate. You say, well, I gave a lot of money. Can I get out of the unworthy category? No. Uh-huh. You're an unworthy servant. See, Jesus is talking to his guys, and Jesus knows what these guys are going to live through in their life. He knows that as he is going to die on the cross, they are virtually all, with the exception of John, going to die a martyr's death as well. See, sometimes we get a distorted view. You know, I'm not picking on the kids' kingdom teachers. Well, I serve the kids' kingdom. Howdy doody. I mean, hey, man, I don't think you could punch your ticket into the kingdom of God because you taught the kids in Sunday school. I don't think you want to hang your resume that you're going to hand to God on the day of judgment. We've got kids' kingdom service on it. Well, I gave my contribution. Well, I, I fed the poor on St. Julian Street. Well, I, 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 went to, I even went to church all the time. You're only unworthy servants. We're only unworthy servants. 
and we're never going to get out of the unworthy servant category. Matter of fact, the more we stay in it, the more we grow to understand it. In one sense, the more we glory in it because we know that the reason we're even in it is because of the grace of God, and that becomes a source of pride. Not pride in us, but pride in God. We're like, God is great. He can accept a doofus like me. Jesus is teaching the guys fundamentals. Okay, guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. It's going to come to a big conclusion, and then you're going to go on your own. You're going to have to learn to deal with sin. You're going to have to learn to deal with forgiveness. You're going to have to learn to deal with faith and growing in faith and loving people properly. And you're going to have to get your attitude straight about what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God. That you've only done your duty. He's saying, watch yourself. That's really the call for us today. This isn't for you to straighten out the person next to you. You know, you don't need to be elbowing. Boy, I hope you are you paying attention here? I, I, I hope they are too. But, but you know, yeah, husbands and wives have an elbow fight on that one. You, you, you'll both go home with sore ribs on that one. But this is for you to watch yourself. Take heed to yourself. Make sure our lives are where they need to be. Hope you've enjoyed and got a lot out of our great study here of Luke 17. God bless us. Have a great fellowship.